chapter 6, verse 1. In the 480th year after the Israelites left Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, during the month of Ziv, the second month, he began building Yahweh's temple. The temple King Solomon built for Yahweh was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Basically, it's a four and a half story building because the story is about 10 feet. The porch in front of the main hall of the temple was 30 feet long, corresponding to the width of the temple, and it was 15 feet wide. So the porch stood out a little bit further. He made frame windows for the temple. He built an extension all around the walls of the temple, main hall, holy place, and constructed side rooms on it. The bottom floor of the extension was seven and a half feet wide, and the middle floor nine feet wide. And the third floor, ten and a half feet wide, and he made ledges on the temple's outer walls, to the beams would not have been inserted into the walls. As the temple was being built, only stones shaped at the quarry were used. The sound of hammers, pickaxes, or any other iron tools was not heard in the temple while it was being built. The entrance to the bottom level of the side rooms was on the south side of the temple, and stairs went up to the middle floor and then up to the third floor, and he finished building the temple and covered it with rafters and boards made of cedar. He built an extension all around the temple, and it was seven and a half feet high, and it was attached to the temple with cedar beams. So that's the basic layout. Now here's the other problem. If nobody lives in the temple, why does it have to be three stories tall? It's kind of like the cathedrals of England. We're building these giant cathedrals so that everybody will know how awesome God is. And I mentioned this last time. Nobody... I've never heard anybody or read any website or read any historical book where people go to Europe and look at all the cathedrals and think, wow, Yahweh is amazing. No engineer or architect in class talks about how amazing Yahweh is when you're studying cathedrals and flying buttresses and all that kind of stuff. They always talk about amazing things that humans were able to accomplish. Now, there's nothing wrong with thinking, wow, that's an amazing thing that you did. That's this total, but not when you're mixing it with God. There's nothing here. All God needed was to get his fire in there. That's it. The tabernacle was small. And yet Solomon's building this. This is an artist's rendition of what it looked like. Okay, now the details are accurate enough that we can have a pretty good idea. So basically you have this giant altar. And one of the things that God said too was don't build an altar with steps so that the priests don't have to lift up their legs to climb the steps. And when people are staying below them, they'll see up their robes and see their nakedness because nobody wants to see the nakedness when you're supposed to be worshiping God. That's a good argument for modesty in church. So what does Solomon do? He builds steps and a giant staircase. Now, granted, it's kind of hard because at least they're wide enough that nobody's going to be staying there. But So these two golden pillars, we're going to learn about those later. I'm not going to read all the details of how you built it. You can read that on your own, and we're going to just show the pictures. But you built these two bronze, golden pillars. Sorry, golden. They're called Jacob and Boaz. Jacob means faithful, loyalty. Boaz means strength of character. And so these, this is Phoenician architecture. It's huge. Look at how the people are in comparison to the height. There's nothing there that says, wow, Yahweh's amazing. It's all about, wow, I can't believe they pulled it off. Here's an artist's rendition of it with a bunch of people around and that kind of stuff. Now, this is considered one of the ancient wonders. Now, it's not the official list of the ancient wonders. It's the pre, like, one of the early ones until, like, 
The ancient wonder list that we have now, the seven wonders, is based on Roman, since the Romans came. But until before the Romans came along, this is one of them. This is one of them. So the wash basin is huge. This is the size of a, a, a swimming pool in your backyard, an above-ground swimming pool. Hold a, it held about 13,000 gallons of water. That's not practical. You don't like lean over this thing and put your hands in and wash it. The whole point of the wash basin was to wash your hands, your arms, and your face and your neck to symbolically represent the cleansing of your sins. You can't do that with that. So he had to put spigots on the side and fill up little mini ones and move them around, which means that's totally show. There was nothing in the tabernacle that was about showmanship. It was all practical, symbolic cleansing of sins. Those pillars have nothing to do with cleansing of sins. That wash basin has nothing to do with practical cleansing of sins. And then this is where he put the oxen. He put three oxen on each side. If the circle was a square. Here's another. This is probably one of the most accurate. This gives you a cutaway. He basically gold-plated everything. Now, which is completely ignoring Exodus, the beams in Exodus of the tabernacle were supposed to be gold-plated on the inside, but only the beams so that when you look, it's kind of like studs, studs without drywall, a drywall only on one side. So that when you look at the studs, they're gold-plated, but when you don't see any drywall on the one side so that when you look through, you can see the studs, but on the other side is a drywall, and that's all purple and blue to represent God and heaven. He covered that all with gold. And gold is going to be a huge emphasis after these chapters. And the narrator is going to make the point that, that Solomon's real God was gold. It was gold. Put five candlestands on each side. And he had these little windows in the top. Now, this is amazing. Like, don't get me wrong. This is an incredible design of architecture. I'm not ignoring the fact that artistically and architecturally, it's amazing. It's beautiful. The problem is it's mixed with God. It's mixed with God. So you got, now think about it. If you have everything gold-plated and you have all these candle stands burning and then you have this light coming in. Remember, these aren't like little candles like on your dinner table. These are like oil lamps, like flames the size of your hand or bigger. This is going to be super bright. And then he built these storerooms on the side and then he built ladders, which you can't see in that cutaway, going up to the different stories. This is all about the glory of Solomon. In chapter 6, verse 11, it says that Yahweh said to Solomon, here's where he interrupts it. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my rules, observe my regulations, and obey my commandments, I will fulfill through you the promises I made to your father David. I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people. God immediately says, as for this temple, if you obey me, then I'll fulfill the promises to your father. Not, when you get done building your temple that your dad wanted, I will fulfill the promises. He says, as for this temple, and then he just stops. If you obey me. Meaning, Solomon, do you honestly think this is going to do anything for our relationship? So Solomon finished the building of the temple and constructed the walls inside the temple with cedar planks and gold-plated everything. So we talked about that. We already talked about the oxen. We talked about the chair beam that are being placed in and how they overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant. All this is done by Hiram Abiff. 
Hiram Abiff, not Hiram, king of Tyre, but Hiram Abiff, the, the, um, the of Natalia. And remember, the only people that will ever be going in this is just a small handful of Levites. It's the only people. Only a small handful of Levites. Everybody is reserved to stay in the outside. Here's where it becomes another emphasis on the wrongness of the temple. Chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon took 13 years to build his palace. He made it. And the palace of Lebanon forced, it was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, and had four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams above the pillars, and the roof above the beams supported by the pillars. What is the contrast between the temple and the palace? palace is way bigger, and it took him longer to build it. And that shows you that Solomon's real emphasis is not the temple. Even David had good motivations. He said, look, I just realized I'm living in this nice cedar palace and Yahweh only has a temple or a tabernacle. It's not right that the God of the universe has a smaller, not as glorious looking thing as I do. Now God comes and says, look, I don't want that because I'm not about the craftsmanship. I'm about the functionalness and the practicality of sacrifices and atonement of sins. And the tabernacle does that better than a temple. However, David's motivation was good. He was humbled by the fact that he felt like, in a worldly sense, he had more than what Yahweh did. And I, don't, I know he didn't really literally think that. Solomon's like, I'm going to build my palace bigger and better. He doesn't even have that motivation. That shows you that his heart is completely in the wrong place. He's building that. And if your heart's in the wrong place, then the thing that you're doing is being tainted. God can still use it for good, but you still tainted it. You still tainted it. Then it goes back to the construction of the temple. And now it focuses on the courtyard, the wash basin that I already talked about, the altar, all that kind of stuff. Now what's interesting is, why would the narrator put the building of the palace right in the middle of the building of the temple. It completely interrupts it. It's completely out of place. Because, yeah, the palace is an interruption. It is out of place on Solomon's priorities. Notice this is the second time that God has interrupted the building of the temple. He first interrupted it to remind Solomon that it's really about obedience. The second time he interrupted it was to show you that God, Solomon's true priorities. It's the building of his house, being bigger and better. And then when he goes back to the temple, he's no longer func- focusing on just the architectural structure. Now he's focusing on the gaudiness of it all. So he basically focuses on, here's what the temple looked like. Then he interrupts it with, you need to be obedient. And he goes back to the temple and how some of the things on the inside were construction. Then he interrupts it with Solomon's misplaced priorities on his own house being bigger and better. And then he goes back to the temple and focuses on the gaudiness of the wash basin and the cherubim being way bigger than the Ark of the Covenant. And it's overshadowing the Ark of the Covenant. And each time you keep going further and further, it just feels like it's getting worse and worse and worse. It's like the person that keeps sticking their foot in their mouth and they keep doing it again and again. You're like, oh my gosh, just please sit down. I can't take this anymore. You're like embarrassing yourself and this is so awkward. 
But they just keep doing it again and again, like George Costanza on Seinfeld, okay? It's just like, just stop talking. <laughs> You're embarrassing yourself. It's getting really awkward, and now it's getting obscene. This is kind of almost what the narrator is doing. Never, ever, ever once was the instruction for the building of the tabernacle ever interrupted in the book of Exodus, and never was it ever interrupted when it was being built. Yet this is. Everything shows, once again, even if you can make, make a good argument for the temple is okay, the way that it's being done, how it's being built, the way that it's designed, and Solomon's misplaced priorities all show that that is not right. None of that is right. And once again, before Solomon has even died, it's already attacked and invaded. It doesn't even make it one generation before it's invaded and attacked. Not even one generation. And then it goes and talks about all the articles that were placed in it and all that kind of stuff. So that's the end of chapter 7. This is the temple. Okay, once again, if you want to read all those little nitty-gritty details, it's all there, and I discuss it all in my notes as well. This is a cutaway, like another view. So basically, you have the Holy of Holies over here on the left and the holy place on the right. So the Ark of the... So if I'm standing in the Holy of Holies, looking through that veil and out the front door... Basically, the Ark of the Covenant is a rectangle with the longest part parallel to the back wall. It would look like this. So you see the Ark of the Covenant there at the box. The cherubim are then placed on either side of it. And the wings are stretched out. And the wings of the cherubim are touching each other. And the peak of their wings touching each other is right above the center part of the Ark of the Covenant. So if you're looking forward, you see the two cherubim. Look Now, the veil would have been there, so nobody would have seen that. But for the sake of art, it's gone. So then when you look at the side, they're pretty far away from the veil. Ark of the Covenant made it. Was all, it was actually the same Ark of the Covenant that Moses had built. So that's the one thing that is the same. But it was made out of acacia wood, and it was gold-plated. But what's interesting is, the near, there's almost like, I don't know how to interpret this one. Scholars go back and forth. When they carry the Ark of the Covenant in, is that they carry the Ark of the Covenant on the poles, they go through the side part, and the poles are there to this day. Well, why would the narrator emphasize that? Some scholars have mentioned, well, it's just because the narrator wants you to know that the poles are there. It's, it's a detailed thing. But there's so many places in the book of Exodus and Joshua where it never mentions the poles, even though they're carrying around, but you know that the poles are there because it's the only way they can carry it. But it almost implies that the poles are still to this day, but they're not being used anymore. Because the Ark of the Covenant will never be moved again, and it will never be taken from city to city, tribe to tribe to tribe, so that all people can have God's glory in their presence, because now it's just stuck in this building. And nobody will ever see the Ark of the Covenant. Now, they were never able to look at the Ark of the Covenant totally, but the Ark of the Covenant was to be covered with animal skins and then the blue curtains of the tabernacle. And you, but you could at least see that box being carried around. You may not be able to see the Ark itself, but it's kind of like covering your sports car with a blanket. You at least know there's a sports car under there. And so the, you at least be able to say, that's the Ark of the Covenant as it's moving around. 
And you can say that's the, the, but now nobody will ever, ever see that again. And the poles now become completely useless. So that one of the things that God emphasized need to be part of the Ark of the Covenant in order to be carried around is now completely useless. God's design is now useless. Because they'll never use it that way. Now, you can interpret that as just, hey, he was just mentioning the poles, or you can mention as the narrator is intentionally trying to make you... It's like I had this boss, and he would buy these sports cars, and then he'd just put them up into like a museum shelf and then cover it with a blanket so nothing would happen to the paint, and they just sit there for years. Well, Why would you buy a sports car just to cover it all up? And then when he built a bigger and better place to show his sports cars... He had to move all the sports cars over there, so we built this place for him. And then we had to move the sports cars over, and we couldn't get 90% of them to start because the engines had just all seized up over the years. And I I can't help but think of that when I think of, and the poles were in the Ark of the Covenant. Sports cars are meant to be driven. Poles are meant to be carried. I think that's what the narrator is saying here. When he built his palace... This is the city of Jerusalem. The city of David is this purple right here. Solomon is going to extend the city of Jerusalem with all the green. Here's another view of it. So here's the city of Jerusalem. This part up there is David's palace. That's the Now, notice how big that palace is compared to the rest of Jerusalem and all the houses there. Yet that wasn't good enough for Solomon's princess Egyptian wife. She wanted something bigger and better. So he extends the city with all this. And then he builds his palace. He builds his palace here. This is his palace. And then this is the temple. So you can see his palace is like a huge percentage of the city. This, this is so much greater than anybody has. And there's a reason why they call it uptown and downtown. Because <laughs> uptown is where the wealthy people live and they're the least likely to be attacked. If somebody comes and attacks your wall, it's closer to the bottom of the hill, and it's easier to get over, and the poor people die first. All this shows misplaced priorities. When you build your palace way bigger than like an entire neighborhood, and then the palace is way bigger than the temple, and you're just moving further and further up the hill away from the people, and the temple is moving further and further up a hill away from the people, that's elitism. That's elitism. And unfortunately, he's turned God into an elitist in the minds of the people. Because eventually that generation is going to die, and the next generation is going to die, and nobody's going to have a memory of a God who dwells in a tent among the people. It's just going to be stories. So this says something. 